Uh, in his book, A Dangerous Wonder, Mike Iaconelli tells about a woman who was vacationing on the barrier islands uh, in, the South, in South Carolina. And one night, she's walking along the beach, and she saw a loggerhead turtle. Now, a loggerhead turtle is one of those, I mean, they're ginormous, like 300 pounds uh, of turtle. Uh, and it was laying its eggs in the sand. Well, the next morning, I mean, she hurried back to where she had seen the turtle, and she saw the eggs, but she was alarmed that she noticed that the tracks of the turtle were heading into the dunes rather than back out to the sea. So apparently it had gotten confused or turned around in the darkness and just gone the wrong way. She followed the tracks and found that turtle uh, in the sand, covered with sand and and not doing well. Recognizing its situation, she notified a park ranger who arrived a few minutes later in his Jeep the ranger flipped the turtle over on its back and wrapped uh, their, the legs in tire chains, the, the, the uh, front legs in tire chains, hooked the chains to his trailer hitch, and then drove off dragging the turtle across the dune so fast that the turtle's mouth filled with sand. And at the edge of the ocean, he unhooked the turtle, flipped her right side up, somewhat dazed, as you can imagine. She didn't move at first. And then the water lapped up against her body. And she slowly began to make her way back into the sea. The lady would later write this. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether you're being killed or saved by the hands that turn your, hand, your life upside down. Let me, let me say that one more time. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether you're being killed or being saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. This is your first week with us. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike. Thanks for being with us online today. We've been in this series about the life of Job, who I would imagine knew exactly what that turtle felt like uh, in his life. If you've been following along, you'll notice that he just couldn't even begin to grasp what had been happening to him. All he knew was that God had turned his life upside down, and he didn't know if life or death was around the next turn. I don't know if you found that to be true. Uh, of yourself when you're going through a very painful time. I'm, it's easy. It's easy to lose touch with God when you're going through darkness. Uh, it's easy to forget that he's in control. And yet, this whole, the whole book of Job reminds us that God is very near, even when we don't sense that nearness in our lives. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've seen Job go from having everything to losing everything. Lost his health and, and his wealth and his family and friends and all 10 of his children. He's hopeless. He's helpless. We've heard him groan in agony. We've, we've watched his wife as she leans in and says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And this whole time, he's just got this one question that he keeps asking. Why? Right? Why? And maybe you've asked this before as well in your own life. Why is this happening to me? As Josh just said, you know, bad things happen to bad people. Good things should happen to good people. And remember, this wasn't caused because Job was so bad. Actually, it was caused because Job was so good, right? Corey Ten Boom, who suffered persecution at the hands of the Nazis, admitted that once she cried out in frustration, God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you don't have very many. Um, this morning, we're going to consider our, the, uh, in our life is hard. We're going to finish it up today. God is good series by looking at the last three chapters of his story. And if you remember last week, we looked at chapters three through 37. As you read through that book, that's really just kind of a discussion back and forth in poetry form between Job and his three friends, mostly his three friends accusing him of doing something wrong that prompted God to treat him as heinously as his life was going, but it also had Job defending himself to his friends and complaining about how God was treating him. Well, this morning, God shows up, and he speaks. And in what he says, we're going to be reminded of three principles 
that we need when we face difficult times in life as well. But I have to warn you, none of these will fly well in our culture today. None of them will. And so I need you to pay attention, right? So here's the first. It's in the notes on the YouVersion Bible app if you've got it. I must accept the fact that God is God and I am not. I want you to remember that when Job's uh, sin, when his life fell apart, uh, it wasn't because of his sin, as we just said. But as the pain persisted with no, no conceivable end in sight for him, he railed against God. I'm not saying his complaints weren't understandable, but look at what he begins to say. I will not keep silent. I'll speak out in the anguish of my spirit, and I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Even, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer uh, me and consider what he would say to me. Because God is unfair. He's done me wrong. If only God had the guts to show his face. I'd tell him a thing or two. By the way, uh, that word complain appears more times in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible. Nearly half of the complaints found in Scripture come from Job. Uh, uh, now, I'm not taking, making light of his agony, but to accuse God of injustice and hatred, that's wrong. Over and over again, Job accused God of attacking him and mistreating him and abandoning him. And for 37 chapters, God allows Job to complain, and he allowed to uh, Job's friends to speculate as to why he was acting that way, uh, incorrectly, I might add. But he's finally had enough, and so in chapter 38, God reminds Job who is large and in charge. As Job and his friends are debating, a storm begins to form in the distance. As a matter of fact, uh, in Elihu's final speech, he references a storm that he sees lightning and thunder, hearing thunder, and some scholars believe that's because the storm was getting closer and larger very quickly. And finally, at the beginning, uh, the beginning of chapter 38, we read this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. God said, I'm tired, tired of listening to you all. I'm tired of your complaints, tired of your accusations. I'm even tired of your explanations for what's going on. Job, you have questions? I have a few of my own. And then God proceeds to grill Job, and he will ask him 70 questions, all, none of which Job is able to answer completely. But this is the longest conversation we have recorded in the Bible where God speaks. And he begins with his creation of the universe. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Have you gone? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Where does the darkness reside? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? And what God is saying basically is, and he's reminding him over and over and over again is, listen, I'm, I'm the creator. You're not the creator. I am. And then he considered the animal kingdoms. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horses his, their strength? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Does the eagle soar at your command? And then throughout chapters 38 and 39, God authenticates his power and authority by appealing to the the natural world. In the beginning in verse, or chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who questions God answer him. Then Job said, the Lord, said, said to the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. God, I've done all the talking I'm going to do. 
I'm just going to sit and listen for a while. Don Baker pointed out uh, in his book, When All Hell Breaks Loose, something always happens when God reveals himself to man. Adam hid, Abraham fell prostrate on the ground, Moses covered his face, Isaiah repented, Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground, his eyes were blinded, his will was broken. Baker uh, concluded, all arguments cease when God makes his appearance. All of Job's complaints were forgotten the moment God spoke. Then he goes on to talk about his character. He said to Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Then I myself will admit that your your own right hand can save you. You're questioning my authority? You doubt my justice? You don't like the way I'm running the universe? Prove to me that you're as powerful as I am and will call it even. You know, there's been this line of thinking that has crept into our culture uh, that's not biblical at all, and I wonder if you have found yourself thinking it as well. And the line of thinking goes something like this. There's the standard of justice and fairness that even God has to adhere to and that we get to determine it. We determine what's fair and what's just, and then God has to adhere to that, or he's not being fair or just. The Bible reminds us that God has the standard of justice and fairness. Therefore, therefore, whatever he does is just and fair. You know, back when George H. Bush was president, it's reported that he went to visit a nursing home, and he's walking around talking to people, shaking hands, and he shook one elderly lady's hand and said, do you know who I am? And she said, no, but if you go to the front desk, they can tell you. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes we forget who we're talking to when we talk to God. We forget when I was in high school, it was ninth grade, our principal's name was Mr. Houston. Mr. Edward Houston, he stood about 20 feet tall and was the law in our school. He was known for his fairness, but he was feared for his size. He was lovingly called Texas Ed, partly because his last name was Houston, but partly just because everything's bigger in Texas, right? Uh, now, we never called him that to his face. We were smart alecks. We weren't idiots. Uh, I really liked Mr. Houston. One day he came down. Uh, and there were a few of us playing basketball. It was his little pickup game. And he asked if he could play. It was great. <laughs> as a ninth grader in high school, I felt like I'd really gotten to know him that day. So much so that the next day as I came into school, Mr. Houston was right there by the front door greeting students as they came in. And, uh, and I said, good morning, Ed. And yeah, he, uh, yeah. I don't know where you were in ninth grade. I'm not even real sure where I was in ninth grade, quite frankly. He looked at me in disbelief. A look I didn't recognize as a ninth grade guy. Uh, he said, good morning, Mr. Tuttle. Would you come to my office, please? And I'm still thinking, this is great. My new friend is inviting me into his office. Uh, he set me straight real quick about how students address faculty, especially the principal of the school. Listen, if any one verse sums up these four chapters, it's in God's lecture. It's where God says, who has a claim about against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God makes it very clear in the course of his speech that he's in control. All of the earth is his and everything in it. And nobody, 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 nobody has the right to tell him what to do. And Job responded much like I did with Mr. Houston. He humbled himself before God. Unless we have also forgotten, this lesson is for us as well. 
God is God. You are not. And I am not. The universe doesn't revolve around us. God is in charge. We're his creation. We are his servant. He is not ours. We don't tell God what to do. Accepting that reality is one step closer to dealing with our problems. Because sometimes God calls us to do things that are hard. Sometimes following scripture, being obedient to the Bible, is inconvenient. Sometimes remaining faithful in a marriage is challenging. Sometimes enduring physical pain can be excruciating. Persisting in this unfulfilling job that you hate can tax you to the limit. But God calls us to be faithful, to reflect his kingdom. And he is God, and we are not. Second is, I have to refuse to expect simple answers to difficult questions. And I, so this is in your notes as well. C.S. Lewis, Christian author, once said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So God speaks to Job both loudly and clearly in these last chapters of the book. And if you've ever read through the entire book, you maybe got to chapter 38 and thought to yourself, like I did the first time I read the book, oh, good. God's finally showing up, and he's going to tell Job why everything's been happening to him. He's going to clear the whole thing up, and everyone's going to feel great about it. Do you know, and if you've read, I, I hope you picked up on this, God never explains himself. He never tells Job, as far as we know, it's not in Scripture, he never tells Job why he, why he did what he did. As far as we know, he never revealed anything about Satan's challenge to God concerning his character. Job didn't receive any answers to his questions. He simply received this intimate encounter with God. Now, there's at least two possible reasons why God didn't answer his questions and why he may not, by the way, answer our questions. One is we may not be able of comp to comprehend the answer. Uh, I don't know if you read Reader's Digest or not several years ago, uh, they told a story about Stuart Cook's three-and-a-half-year-old son, Matthew, who was eating an apple in the back seat. Well, he ate part of it, and then he put it down for a bit. Then he picked it back up, and he, he looked. It was starting to turn brown, and he said, Daddy, why is my apple turning brown? And Stuart said, after you ate the skin off, the meat of the apple came into contact with the air, which caused it to oxidize, thus changing its molecular structure and causing discoloration. And there was this moment of silence, and three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew said, Daddy, are you talking to me? Uh, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our finite brains cannot grasp everything he has going on all at the same time in the universe that we know of. And another possible reason why God didn't answer all of our, doesn't answer all of our questions is because the uncertainty itself forces us to lean on God. Max Lucado, again, in your notes, a season of suffering is a small price to pay for a clear view of God. If we've never struggled, we've never really learned to lean upon God. If we've never faced uncertainties, our faith isn't going to be tested and stretched and molded and made strong. I don't know if you remember all the way back in chapter 1 how Job responded after the first round of uh, what Satan poured after him. It says that he fell to his knees and worshipped God. I bring that up because I want to make sure that you hear this. Anyone can worship God when things are going well. 
when it's all going smooth, the wind is in your sails, and you've got God's smile in your life. Anyone can worship God. But when you feel like he's not hearing you, when you feel as if you're no longer living in his smile, that somehow the heavens are silent even though you're pounding on the doors, that's when we realize when we worship, we don't worship God for what he gives us or what he keeps from us. We worship God because of who he is, not just what he does. That's why when I ask something of God for myself or for you, so I mean Jesus told us, right? Tell the Father what you want, and so I do, and I, I remind him that Jesus told us to do that in case, you know, I just wanted to remember that. And then I follow that up very, very quickly with, uh, help me to trust your answer. If your answer isn't what I've asked for, help me trust you, because I'm going to struggle with that. And I need the Spirit to help me trust your answer and know that it's best. God doesn't always tell us why things happen as they do. Neither does he tell us what the outcome's going to be. He didn't with Job, and he won't with us. Again, Don Baker said this, Job didn't need to know why these things happened as they did. He just needed to know who was responsible and who was in control. All Job needed to know was God. So when it comes to difficult questions about suffering and death, I'd say we may as well not expect any easy answers because there really aren't any. The only answer is God himself, which brings us to this last thought. I need to embrace God's promise to make things right in the end. When we're going through this darkness in our life, to just trust his promise. In the last chapter of Job, God reprimanded Job's friends for their bad theology and just kind of being knuckleheads in general. And then it says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And in verse 12 it says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Suddenly, the boils are gone. And there's no scar. On his, on his skin. Suddenly this fever breaks as this uh, fresh wind, cool breeze refreshes him. Suddenly his friends are smiling at him. Again, suddenly he's able to return home and the homestead that he builds is twice the size of the one he had before. Suddenly one morning, sometime later, his wife giggles over breakfast and leans in and whispers in his ear, I'm pregnant. <laughs> now that's not a blanket promise. Please, please, please don't hear that. That is not a blanket promise that God will give you a double portion of blessing if you've suffered loss. If you lose $100 today, I am not telling you that God will give you $200 tomorrow. If your first husband divorced you and you get remarried, it won't be to someone who's twice as nice necessarily as them. If you lost your job, that's $50,000 a year today. There's not, I'm not saying there's a $100,000 job just waiting around the corner. It may not be a double portion of blessings in this life, but God does promise to bless us here and ultimately to welcome us into his home. You know, we did a series on James, the book of James, right before this series. And we looked at this passage from James chapter 5 about Job. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Let's read the last few words together. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If you want to remember something about the book of Job, 
the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let me remind you of something that many of us have heard. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I like the way Warren Wearsby said it. He said, we don't live our Christian lives on explanations. We live it based on promises. We don't have to have explanations. It'd be nice. But we live on promises. So we had this promise given to us about the cross. I don't know if you remember it or not. It's something like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that when everything is going their way, and the road is smooth, and life is great. Is that what John 3.16 says? Or does it just say, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, even when life is not what you thought it would be, that if you'll believe in him, you will never perish, but you'll have eternal life. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to be quiet so that you can talk to God about where you stand on these promises and what we've learned from Job about explanations and who's in charge and who's calling the shots and who you're going to trust. And then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for a story like Job that reminds us, really, I don't know that it teaches anybody but it reminds us of what we've already, many of us have already experienced, and for those who haven't, they will. It's almost a promise of life. Actually, Jesus did promise we would have trouble in this life. It is a lie from Satan to expect that life will always go well, and yet we tend to think that it's going to, and then we're confused when it doesn't. And we get angry with you, and we question your love, and we question your kindness and your compassion. Help us, Father. Help us to, when we don't understand, that we know we can trust you. Even when we don't understand, even when we don't like it, that we can trust you with our lives and with the life that is to come. So God, thank you for this. Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross that paid for our sins. Help us not to take lightly what you did for us. That our best day, the day we got to give our lives to you, came at the cost of your worst day. So thank you. And Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to walk faithfully with you, following Jesus, even in, in the darkness of life when it comes on us. Help us to trust you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And so we take the wafer that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us.
promise made and a promise kept by God, as all of his promises are. All his promises have been made, have been kept. And in Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins, and so we remember. the juice that reminds us of his blood for those of us who have given our lives to Christ it reminds us of a promise that we made to him of our life that he would not just be our savior but he would be our Lord and that we would trust him knowing that we don't always understand and trusting him to help us let that be okay and so we remember And so we, we talk about that promise that we make at our baptism, and Abigail Wickline has come this morning to make that promise to God through her baptism. And so her mom is with her right now in the baptistry. And I want to say before we throw it out that direction, that if you have come this morning and you've never made that decision, but you've been kind of thinking about it, we would love to help you with that. Uh, there is something about walking, trusting Jesus. Jesus. 